Hello, hello. We are talking pet chat, and welcome Cheryl Shaw and Dr. David Tabret. Lovely to have you both on board. Thank you, Sarah. Lovely to be here. Cheryl, people that are regular listeners know that I try and pick the topic you're talking about based on the brooch you're wearing. That's right. You've got a, a rock dog brooch, so it's a it's a rock <laughs> like a quartz painted with a dog face today. Sarah, it is. And so, what do you think we're going to talk about? Rock wheelers. Do- no. oh. That was very quick. <laughs> Did you script that? No, I didn't. That's it's just excellent. you know, it just comes to me. It's talent. Yeah, it mm. is. Well done. Oh, it is. Thank you. Uh, rocks. Yep, and dogs eating them. Ah. Okay. This Ooh. is a good one at the moment because um, there's the New South Wales Rocks Group, which I'm a part of, where you're painting rocks and hiding them for kids to find in parks and all over the place. Well, so, Sarah, the one I'm wearing is exactly that. Someone dropped it into work. Oh, did they? Yeah, which is rather cute. Oh, how cute is that? Yeah. I like that a lot. And you made it into a brooch. I have, indeed. You're so clever. Very clever. Cheryl's Goodness clever. me. And David, we'll obviously get to what you're discussing a little later on, but you're here to I, answer any questions. I am, but uh, when you get to my topic, you won't want a brooch uh, oh. made of that. Oh. <laughs> okay. We'll see. Jan in East Maitland. Are you the Jan that phoned in last week? Yes. Your yes. dog needed all of his teeth out and you yeah, were quite they concerned. Kept it, oh, they had hit me with a stun gun on Monday. Myself, <laughs> I was worse than Bronson. Oh. I, cried <laughs> all, I cried all day. Oh, Jan. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to come back and I can't even look at him. And I'm thinking, oh, God. <laughs> but anyhow, we went and picked him up at five o'clock and he was like an old drunk. He was looking at us. I said, I'll fix you, put in my ear. And <laughs> anyhow... The next day he had to have um, syringe things for the pain and mm. he's got to have any... He's marvellous, you know, he got up... This was on Monday and he got up yesterday morning and I'm saying to him, oh, he can't eat, Barry, how's he going to eat? Oh, and I'm crying and I'm looking at him, he's looking at me all sorrowful. And then here, Barry went up the shop and got him a hot barbecue chicken. Oh, wow, that's <laughs> lovely. So we bought... I cut that up yes. and he gob- gobbled Go- it down. Goodness and he yeah. hasn't... He hasn't stopped eating since. Oh, He's marvellous. They kept his two top to them, like you said, David, his two, two top and his bottom so his tongue wouldn't hang out. Is that the canine teeth? <laughs> and he is absolutely marvellous. So I'm just ringing up. Nobody would be worse than me, I told you. Aww. So anyone that hesitates about having it done, don't. Mm. Oh, well, that's great, great feedback. Yeah, yeah. good on you, Jane. He is wonderful, but, oh, God, the look he gave me on Monday night when I picked him up. Oh. <laughs> well, oh, that's a that's... success story right there. You know, the, the interesting thing is that we, we certainly personalise or, or put ourselves in that place with the dog and we think, you know, this is a terrible thing. But what we're missing is that the reason why we have to have the teeth out is their mouth is sore, there's disease. Mm. And I've heard this story so many times with people they get the procedure done and suddenly they've got this new dog. Yeah. It's kind of, they've come back to life. Almost like you've added years onto their life mm. because they've been walking around, you know, not happy. And a lot of people say, oh, they still eat. Yeah, well, they've got to survive. So what dogs do is they actually shift the food to the side that's less painful. Which is an awful way to eat. Well, now, mm. now her dog is... Happy and eating roast chicken. Judy in Maryville, your dog is 12 years old and has started vomiting. Yes, yes. She's, um, she's a Kelpie mm-hmm. and um, it, she actually she sleeps on the floor next to my bed and she generally chooses around 4 o'clock in the morning to start and um, it's thick, white, mucusy stuff, a mm. little puddle of it. 
Okay. Um, and how, how often is she doing that, Judy? Is it every night? Well, no, not every night, but, you know, maybe sometimes it's three times a week, sometimes Uh-oh. it's twice a week. Um, sometimes yep. she'll go for a couple, like she's gone for a, a couple of weeks, I think, or a week or so, uh, ten days, and yep. then last night she did it again. And um, how long has this been happening for? Oh, probably probably a couple of months, you know, mm. or okay. thereabouts. Yeah. Now, is she still... Otherwise, she's perfectly well. She's eating? She, eating okay? Yeah. yeah? Okay. Oh, God, yes. She gets up and jumps up in the morning and gobbles her breakfast down, yeah. So one of the things that we often look at, and, and to be honest, I get confused um, with, with uh, dogs doing this, is differentiating between vomiting, regurgitating and coughing when they're retching and bringing stuff up. And this can yeah. actually be one of the things if we need to determine exactly what is happening and uh, because the the way that we investigate this is going to vary so differently between say those three things regurgitating is when the dogs just kind of bring stuff up and it's often that white foamy or liquid like you describe and there's almost no effort involved it just appears Uh, vomiting is when you know the classic kind of their stomachs moving and they look really bad and sick and they're bringing up food or something like that. And then some dogs that we see that have got, uh, they're coughing and there's fluid coming from their lungs, it can appear very similar as well. And, you know, we would need to investigate whether they've got lung disease or heart disease. Um, Regurgitation is when we have esophageal disease and vomiting from the stomach can be caused by a huge range of problems. Um, e- including things like liver disease, sure stomach, yeah. stomach disease. It can be caused by parasites. It can be caused by toxins. It can be mm. caused by middle ear infections, you know. So yeah. we do have to try and narrow that down. And part of it is maybe even getting a sample of what uh, your dog's bringing up. Um, right. This kind of problem, uh, you really need to go see the veterinarian about this because... You know, it could indicate something quite sinister. And on the other side, there may be a lot of different types of treatments that are available, and right. this, this could be something that's easily treated or certainly to improve um, your dog's quality of life. But like um, the, the, the word regurgitate sort of, you know, it sounds... Because she, she sort of does this... Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that sounds more like vomiting, but, again, it could actually be coughing type of reaction so it's it's that difficulty in trying to narrow it down and the other day this happened to me as my dog was sitting in the front seat of the car family's in the back and (laughs) and we'd been to the beach and she just started to look a bit funny and nauseous and i said oh you know what's wrong and i said to uh, my wife i said i think she's going to vomit like she Mm. so we pulled over and she had already vomited Like she was sitting beside me on the seat, and it had already happened, and I hadn't even noticed until afterwards. Yeah, and it was vomiting. Um, So Mm. because she brought up a stomach contents because she'd drunk seawater. The point. The point is that they don't all read the textbooks. They don't all follow what they should be doing, and so it can be a little bit difficult to differentiate. Yeah. You know, that's the first step. 
Um, this is sort of not food. She's definitely not bringing food or food up off the yes. stomach. And the fact, she does snore, like she snores quite loudly. And yep. um, I thought, oh, maybe it's sort of mucus or something like that. Well, that's right. It could be. And another clue there is that you said that it's happening at that time of night. And that kind of just twigs to me the fact that she's eating okay and it's not associated and there's no food. I'm just wondering if it is a regurgitation or if it is a chest problem, lung problem. Uh, and your veterinarian should be able to find out those things pretty quickly just with a consultation and um, start from there. So good luck. We're going to go to Peter now in Stockton. You've got two cockatiels <coughs> and looking for some advice off David. Hello, Peter. Yeah, hey, David. Yeah, mate. Uh, just uh, the cockatiels are uh, hood on them. Uh, it's the first time that's happened to me. Um, they're not cleaning each other's hood. Right. And the male, his hood is, is bent over his head, sort of thing. Oh. Um, it's it's uh, lacking something like calcium or... Um, now, when you say the hood, which part are you talking about? It's not a... On, on, you know how it sticks up? Oh, oh okay. They're feathers up on top? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so there's a couple of things I would probably comment, and then I would really need to see your birds to say which way this could go. But generally, um, there's a few things. One is that there's a lot of, well, nowadays there is, uh, there's a lot of genetic variation. We see a lot of colour mutation with birds and changes in their feather patterns um, and feather structure. So some birds might be more prominent and some less. So that could actually be a genetic thing. But the other side is that with birds, when we have skin disease, we get feather problems. And skin disease... uh, the skin is, despite what it appears in humans, um, is actually a very highly metabolic organ, and in birds even more so, okay, because really that's their, their feather growth and their protection against the outside. They don't have enough body mass to have this huge immune system, so their skin and their feathers actually protects them so much from the environment. Incredibly important. Anytime you get some sort of internal metabolic disease, it can show up in the skin and then in the feathers. And on the same side, obviously, if you get parasites and things like that on the skin itself, that can also cause those sort of problems. So it's something that we would look at the outside of the bird, but sometimes we actually need to look at the inside of the bird by doing maybe a blood test or something like that. And yeah. Peter, with the birds, were they previously um, preening each other? No, I put it's a new female I put in the cage. Okay, just at the, the other moment. One died. Okay, oh. at the moment birds are going through a molt, so quite often they won't um, preen each other while they're going through their molt. So it, it could be, like David said, something that you need to have a look at for the skin. But also, birds are molting at the moment. So the other the other thing too, I was going to finish on is that the diet, because of this metabolic activity. Their diet really drives what their skin health looks like, what their feathers look like. So we often go back and look at, you know, making sure we get the, the right balance of uh, their dietary protein, fats, carbohydrates, things like that. Let's take one more call before we look at the coastal waters. Diane, now your dog is uh, 18 months old and is extremely nervous. Is that correct? Yeah, extremely nervous. Yeah, she hears this, like a, a sudden noise, like a, a ping on the phone, and she just about goes through the roof. Mm. Mm. That's that's uh, pretty excessive, isn't it? When we now, what sort of dog are we talking about? What breed? She's a, a Maltese Shih Tzu. 
Okay. There are certainly some breeds and some families of dogs that are more anxiety-prone than others. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say Maltese Shih Tzu would fall into that group, but certainly we do see some genetic influence and some of that, mm. so some of that goes back to what the parents were like and, uh, you know, their earlier upbringing. So your dog's relatively young and there's going to be a, a huge amount. It's this kind of nature versus nurture. How much of the, right. the behaviour is actually being influenced by their genetics and, and their parents and then what happens after that as they move into your house? And, you know, for dogs that, for instance, uh, live near uh, a large train station or highways or things like that, that constant input into their system can actually, you know, initiate this mm, yeah. anxiety and trigger mm. it. On the other well, hand... We're, we're in a very quiet area. We have a, yeah. like a cul-de-sac and a bush reserve at the back. Yeah, and on the other hand, that's the other side, isn't it? Is that if it's naturally quiet and then there's a sound that appears, suddenly they're like, oh, that's a, you know, possible alarm. So some, yeah, it could be. Yeah, some dogs... Um, then we look at doing desensitisation. We've talked about this in the past, about things like thunderstorms and fireworks. You know, they're, they're kind of the things that stand out as, oh, well, you know, they're loud, they're sudden, they're unexpected. You would yep. kind of expect dogs to be reactive. The kind of anxiety you're talking about is a whole nother level and something mm. that uh, treatment with some medication then allows your dog to calm down when it needs to be. Right. It also then allows you to get the dog... It would remain calm when those sounds would suddenly appear anyway, things like the microwave pinging or the phone, and the mm. dog doesn't react. So that as you gradually go along with time, you would find, well, now we're less reactive, we withdraw the medication, and the dog has... Oh, now, good. You know, they've now learned mm. uh, that they don't need to react as they are. So it's not a case of saying we're, we're putting you on medication for life. Um, it's just a case of saying... How can we get your dog to be calm in normal circumstances? And here's a bit of help right. to get there. David, oh, thank do, you so much. Do you do training while they're medicated? Yes, yes, that's okay. important. Well, it depends on the instances that this is occurring. So the thing is, if we talked about this, say, with thunderstorms, uh, is that we try and train dogs before the season. Mm, okay. Because once you, if you're trying to do it during the thunder season, like summer... You, you just can't because you, you get so far with the training and then later that night there's this huge thunderstorm and you feel like you've gone backwards. Yeah, yeah. So that's a little bit, you know, this sort of scenario, you might be able to do some training where you've got, you could actually, you know, recreate a noise on your phone and just start at a very low volume and then we reward the dog for being calm as I said, under with medication, it helps. And then gradually step up the volume. Increase the volume, okay. And just keep them rewarded. And when they start to show signs of anxiety, the very early signs, we back off and yeah. come back tomorrow. Okay. So, you know, there is probably more scope for training with this sort of problem. Some good advice there for hmm. Diane. Bill from Nelson Bay, uh, you've got a question about introducing a new dog to an old dog. Yeah, that's right, Sarah. I've got uh, a nine-year-old Doberman. And as most people know, Dobermans become very attached to one person. And we've been asked to uh, take on a two-year-old female Doberman. And I was just wondering whether good thing, bad thing. Uh, that, that is a little bit of a tricky one there. Have these dogs met before, Bill? No, this is the first time they'll meet today. 
Okay. I would suggest meeting not at um, either home, going to a, a local park or somebody, you know, somewhere close neutral, by. Neutral territory. Neutral territory, yeah. absolutely. Because if yeah. you are trying to introduce either dog to, uh, to the other at its home, there could be a few issues there. We want to meet them um, in this neutral territory so that they're not showing, oh, this is my environment. And then if they're getting on okay and taking them home after that but this will give you a really good indicator of how they interact with each other um in the mm. park mm. yeah well you know like dobermans are, are very possessive when with one person absolutely and they are very bonded usually to one family member more than the other and um it, it can be a very difficult thing if the puppy if the second dog was a puppy it would be a totally different situation but you've got two mature dogs meeting and that's yep. where you could run into some issues bill now, Bill... All right, so uh, neutral ground? Yes, absolutely. Neutral ground. Now, are both dogs desexed? Yeah, both dogs are desexed. Okay, well, that at least takes out hormones out of yes. the <laughs> equation. Of, so hormones just get you into trouble, is my experience. So anyway, um, <laughs> oh, is there a story there? <laughs> I, th I think you'll be. I think uh, Cheryl's advice will set you up for success. And um, but Cheryl, once we go back to the house, obviously there's this bonding thing. Um, one of the things I would emphasise is about making sure these dogs are fed out of sight of each other. Yes. So that we're limit limiting the kind of interactions around uh, resources. Like we've talked about. You know, the bonding to a person, that's actually a resource that dogs will protect. Yes. Food, yeah. You know, food is another resource. So you have to minimise the amount of uh, conflict that can develop. And uh, just being on their home turf, that's one potential, you know, kind of issue. Uh, the attachment to a person is another issue. Food's another issue. So let's okay. let's try and minimise that and just go slowly, slowly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you do have to think when you get home, they're going to re-establish their patterns as well because you've got a, a dog who has been singular yeah. in the home and then you're bringing another dog. So, you know, that hierarchy is going to be a little bit of a challenge, particularly with the breed that you are talking with Doberman. I, I think the big problem's going to be who has to sit in the chair. <laughs> you might need to get another chair. Another chair. Well, I've got two, but... Yeah. You need three. One's, one's for you. The problem. Yeah. You might be on the floor, Bill, and they'll be on the chairs. It's, but it's interesting because I, I, I'm just trying to think back. Almost everybody that I've ever seen that had a Doberman had more than one. So, yeah. you know, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think, um, and Bill knows this as well, yeah. but for other listeners, we're not saying, oh, this is a breed that you can oh, no. only have one in the house. No. It's just you're bringing in another dog. Yeah. So let's, and it's an adult yeah. dog as well. So yeah. this is where your, your conflict can sometimes occur. But, hmm. you know, if it was a puppy, it'd be straightforward. Um, just with an older dog, it can, a little, little bit of tricky. Yeah. Now, I know, Cheryl and David, you're going to shake your head severely at me but bill just reminded me with the chairs there has been situations in our house where gizzy is curled up mm. on the lounge um and max my four and a half year old wants to sit on the lounge and we won't let him because i don't want gizzy to have to jump off well He's so it's, comfortable. Fair, it's pretty straightforward though how old's gizzy 14 he's been there longer <laughs> that's exactly right that's exactly right oh you've got to laugh don't you 49216216 we do have a free line right now dr david tabret here to answer any of your questions we might quickly have a look at our dog of the week cheryl and david because oh. this week we've got maddie who's a one and a half year old female corgi cross terrier you know, mm. it's very timely given the, the arrival of the new bub, the royal bub. 
What, what is his name? I don't, I don't, I don't even know. I don't think it's been released yet. Oh, Okay. I'm more interested in my niece, Hannah, that was born yesterday, to be honest. But, look, um, yeah, Maddie's coat needs regular brushing because she's sort of got that long hair, doesn't she, Cheryl? She does, yep, that Jack Russell. Yeah, the Jack Russell hair. And she's getting used to being brushed in foster care and she loves to chase a ball. So she's an energetic little girl uh, who loves learning to be... Well, she is learning, rather, to be an inside dog. She currently sleeps in the laundry, is using the doggy door. She needs to find a forever home where she is the only dog, though. She loves... Loves her humans and her toys, but she's not too sure about interaction with other dogs and cats. Would that be a bit hard to introduce at this point in time as well, David? Uh, I think you have to pay respect to the information from the foster carers who they've observed, Maddie, and they kind of know what's going to work out best. Not impossible. But but you don't want to make her uncomfortable at this point. No, I'm just looking at the photo thinking that dog is a ball of energy. Yeah. She's super cute. She looks like. It's a still photograph, but I can see her running. <laughs> yeah, you kind of can. Can't you? you can almost see the wind blowing the, the fur back as well. Yeah, she is cute. <laughs> uh, look, she's fine with older children. She's good left at home by herself for short amount, short amount of time. Um, she will need a house with a colour bond fence and no views of the front of the house as distractions can upset her a little. Oh, that's interesting. No, we don't want a barker, so no. colour bond fence is going to be important. Well, there you go. That's a very good description. Obviously, these <laughs> owners know her well. So if you're interested in Maddie, then you can always head to our website, 2NURFM.com, and please click on Dog of the Week. Let's go back to the phones now and take some more callers. We've got Ted from Wanderlin. Uh, you're talking about rehoming a cockatoo, Ted. I certainly am. Uh, we're in a bit of a dilemma at the moment. Um mm-hmm. My mum is, uh, she's in her 80s now, and we've got a cockatoo that's 52 years old. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had him since he was uh, a baby. Wow. So uh, he's been part of our family all our life. Yeah. And mum's getting on in age now, and she can't kind of get out the back to feed him and all that. Yeah. So, um, and clean his cage. So... I've rung up Bird Rescue Newcastle and everything and uh, got some bloke's number, but he just doesn't answer his phone. I've rung up the RSPCA and they recommend euthanising him. I was just wondering whether you have any contacts for rehoming uh, cockatoos. Um, well, I think, first of all, you've, you've been approaching this in the right way, but there are some difficulties that you've uh, come across straight away and the the advice from the RSPCA kind of responds to the fact that if you think about cockatoos in the wild is that they live in small flocks but they're paired up and so when you've got a a caged or a pet cockatoo uh, particularly for the length of time you're talking about this is a bird that um, you know obviously not suitable to be released into the wild um I would imagine that there's probably other avenues that we could reach out to people. I don't have any particular contacts, but I, yeah. this is one of the things where the power of social media makes a big difference. The power of radio, Ted. Power I can guarantee we'll yeah, have people call. So yeah. you're happy, obviously. Um, we'll keep your details. We we absolutely yeah. will get callers who will be interested. So you're happy for I, us to pass details I on. Certainly am. Yeah. yeah. And I, I um, used to live uh, next to someone who was very similar circumstances to what you've described, and yeah. um, I can't remember the exact details of what happened with their cockatoo, but it, the thing about cockatoos, and I've worked in bird practice and so on, people get birds and you say to them, okay, what are you going to do for the next 80 years? 
Exactly. And they go, yeah. what do you mean? I said, these birds live for this period of time. I'm thinking for the next 60. Yeah, yeah, 80 to 100 yeah. years. Wow. So yeah. you do have to actually plan for that eventuality. These birds will outlive us. And so you have to make some sort of provision for that. But it is very difficult um, because they absolutely are bonded to a person. They are. How and they explain to me that he's in his uh, surrounding that he's been in for so long that yeah. uh, urban rehoming could be an issue for the bird. Mm. That, that can be true, although I would suggest that there are actually ways to modify um, and recreate the... You know, transition. the way the transition because you can change the cage setup with, you know, yeah. lots of native trees, plants, branches, and so on. And that'll actually calm the bird down and make it feel comfortable. But it's actually more about finding the place that it can go long term. So we'll make sure that uh, hopefully, if there's people listening and they can, what on the Facebook page would be? Glenda in Fishing Point. Now, Glenda, your dog has had a stroke. Yes, yes, she has. Um, she's a 10-year-old purebred Sharpay. Oh. And about about 10 weeks ago, she just stopped eating and drinking. She wouldn't come out of her kennel. After about a day or two of her not getting better, I took her to the vet and he diagnosed her um, as having had a stroke. Wow. Um, yeah. And it... <laughs> Her mouth drooped and she was falling to one side. It was just like a human. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And he said there was really no treatment as such. And, and, you know, she'll get as good as she's going to get within around six weeks. And that will be, you know, how she will be. Mm. Now, that's been 10 weeks now. We've come to the realisation she's deaf and blind from the stroke. That would be unusual um, because you've described the facial droop, uh, which is nerve seven. Blindness can be... The blindness can be located in a number of different places in the brain and the nerve pathways, but nowhere near nerve seven. Um, Deafness could be... Well, nerve eight is where is the cranial nerve eight is where hearing comes through, but you can have deafness at multiple levels. It's probably more likely there's two scenarios I can think of. One is that you've got an older dog that's got multiple problems, not all related to the one thing, or the other possibility is that we have had, uh, for the purpose of saying stroke, is like cerebrovascular accident or CVA. Um, and one of the th- ways that they occur is through clots in blood vessels that supply that area of the brain. And okay. so what we have now know, and this is kind of just recent stuff, to be honest, is that if we go looking, there's often a cause for this to occur and there's four main conditions that dogs can have that lead to this now there is actually a caveat that there's a whole lot of other dogs that don't have these conditions that are having these events and so we call them idiopathic or we just don't know what's going on but the conditions that can cause this could also cause something like blindness separately so things like primary hypertension like high blood pressure Okay, chronic, uh, chronic kidney disease, that's another one. Um, hyperadrenocorticism or Cushing's disease can cause this. And for the life of me, I've forgotten the fourth one. <laughs> It'll come to me in a sec. But 
anyway, oh, right. the thing is that there are possibilities there that could explain both. And one of the things with blindness I would do with your dog is to actually have a look at the retina because if you have hypertension, you would see prominent blood vessels. Um, if you had... The other thing is a blood test to look for kidney disease. And, you know, those kind, those kind of things can be treated. Um, it won't retrieve the neurological, the nerve damage, the stroke. You won't, you know... But hopefully if there is one of those other things that is underlying this, you don't want uh, another event to occur. You don't want other, you know, illness or uh, disease to occur. No, okay. Well, the vet at the time took blood and said uh, there was nothing untoward okay. sort of came back. So oh, that's good. Well, that kind of rules out kidney disease, okay? Yeah. Yeah, okay. and probably so rules out of, Cushing's. Right, yes. So she's pretty much living, you know, with yeah. her only sense probably is her smell. Um, and we can tell, you know, it's clearly obvious that she doesn't hear you when you come home. She barks at my car yeah. sometimes now because she can't actually see that it's my car. Um, yeah, it's, it's only... Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of dogs will actually start to adapt with those things, and so it's not uncommon, um, and vision can be hard to assess because, again, you can actually get situations where that function, uh, you know, it might be just peripheral, might be central. We just don't know the extent of it. But it is possible that we can retrieve some of those functions. More than likely, what we see is uh, we don't... The dogs actually start to adapt to the environment. So although it's been 10 weeks, I would say that's a fairly short time and hopefully you see your dog start to improve it, how it lives. We mentioned Cushing's disease mm. in that in this call and we've got Pete from Millfield now. Uh, you have a small 12-year-old dog and does have Cushing's disease. Yeah, that's correct. Um, we've been through a lot of tests and had a bit of illness with the last year nothing came back and um, talk about recently we had tests done and um, it came back confirmed was positive for Cushing's disease and um, all the symptoms she has matches perfectly but um, the, the next step sort of was to um, spend you know, another $500 on more tests and um, if that, depending on if it came back again it was sort of going to be about $2,000 a year for medication and um, we weren't sort of yeah, wanting to or in a position to head down that road but from research I found that um, some vets had recommended treating with um, melatonin and um, flaxseed lignin, or there were other herbal preparations so specifically for Cushing's disease. But I was wondering if you'd had any experience if these were a good avenue to try, or if there was any dietary things we should include or avoid yep. sort of for her um, okay, so very quickly, Cushing's disease is named after a guy called Harvey Cushing. He was a human neurosurgeon. And um, basically it refers to an excess of cortisol hormone in the body. And cortisol is produced by the adrenal glands, so they sit next to the kidneys. Um, there's two main forms. Cortis uh, you can get disease caused by tumours of the adrenal glands or... It's pre the adrenal glands are stimulated by a hormone from the brain called ACTH, which comes from the pituitary gland. Normally, there's a feedback loop, and in your dog, and this is the most common type, um, the feedback loop is not working, and so you just keep pumping out too much cortisol. That has a number of effects across the body. Um, but essentially, as far as treatment goes, I think I don't know of anything that would 
deal with this excess cortisol or reduce the excess cortisol except the standard medications. And there's two types. One is called mitotane. Uh, that's, an, yeah. that's an older drug and um, probably not used that frequently, although it is a bit cheaper. The problem with it is the monitoring is more expensive um, because okay. yep. you can make things worse if you give too much of it. And right. the other drug, which is more expensive but safer, is called trilostane. Um, and that drug has been around for a few years now and it works quite well. So you can actually return dogs to having a really good quality of life. Um, overall, I'm not sure of the exact cost. Probably the advice that you've had sounds pretty accurate. And, um, but I don't, I don't think there's anything else that is really going to deal with the fact that you've got too much cortisol and, you know, that's like living under chronic stress every single day. And, yeah. you know, that has negative effects on the body. So I'm sure, I'm sure that there's some dietary factors. There's some probably – there are some preparations that help to alleviate some of that, but nothing gets rid of the cortisol except the standard treatments. Okay. Some good advice there as yep. well. Good luck with it all. Uh, there you go. I think that's just about it for Pet Chat. You had some mm-hmm. very impressive answers today, David. I always <laughs> have impressive <laughs> answers. No, but... Impressive questions. That's what they, they gives you impressive answers. They were great medical questions today. Yeah. Thank you. Except for when you got callers. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank yeah. you for our callers. We appreciate it. That is time for us. But look, Pet Chat, of course, is back next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.